This video was sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy now at expressvpn.com forward slash history time. There is a story of old, still spoken on the Hungarian plains today, a tale that talks of an ancient world, long before Christianity took hold in these lands, back when the Hungarian people lived a migratory nomadic existence, steeped in the mythology and legends of their forefathers. For this, some 1100 years ago, was the new grazing grounds of the Magyars, a pastoralist nomadic people pushed into Europe from the Eurasian steppelands to the east. As far as Hungarian mythology is concerned, in the year 896 or thereabouts, the tale differs from region to region. The seven clans of the Magyar horse lords came thundering westwards in search of a new home. Along with them, leading from the front, came a long-lasting symbol of their identity. The mighty Turrell bird, a huge, monstrous, falcon-like creature personifying the nomadic way of life these people had lived since emerging from the Siberian forests of the Far East innumerable centuries before. One day, so the story goes, the outriders of the Magyar clans spied the Turrell bird landing on a hilltop not too far from the river Danube. The plains around were lush, fine pasturage for herd animals, and of course, their prized possessions, horses. Each Magyar warrior would have needed at least 10 to maintain an effective presence on the battlefield, for the Magyars were not a peaceful people. In fact, they had been pushed westwards from the northern shores of the Black Sea after a lengthy series of wars with their neighbours, most notably the Pechenegs, a fierce confederation of Turkic tribes represented by their own animal symbol, the eagle. Perhaps representing one of the great leaders of the tribe, such as Almos, a man said to have been ceremonially sacrificed to the gods at some point during the Exodus. Desperate times call for desperate measures. The Turrell bird carried a sword within its talons, which it dropped on that day, thus signifying the formation of a new homeland for the Hungarians. And as far as the traditions are concerned, the city of Budapest. A stronghold for Almos's descendants, the Arpad clan, for centuries to come. Of course, this is just a story, yet it speaks volumes for the pagan world these people inhabited. A pre-literate, pre-Christian existence inhabited by gods and monsters. A time when the border between the spirit world and the material was perhaps not so firm as it is today. Though almost nothing concrete is known of pre-Christian Magyar religion, the later chronicles exclusively being written by disapproving Christian writers close to a century after the Hungarians converted to Christianity, we can catch brief glimpses of this primal world 
not just in mythology, but in the archaeological record and in contemporary written sources. Like many steppe peoples, shamanistic beliefs are often thought to have been held, perhaps alongside animistic practices, ancestor cults, and the belief that kin groups descended from animals. We know that sacred trees and springs were worshipped, and the elements themselves perhaps thought to be harnessable by specially trained wizards using rainmaker stones. These strange artefacts have been excavated all over Hungary. Perhaps, like the Caucasian Huns to the east, wars were fought by chieftains to obtain the services of these sorcerers. Thought to be able to summon rain from the hollowed-out trunks of consecrated oaks. Yet, rainmaker stones aren't the only archaeological remains of these people. All over the Hungarian plains, both elite and peasant burials have been found, filled not only with horse gear, but with astonishing amounts of wealth and plunder from lands as far afield as Spain, Italy, France, Germany and the Byzantine Empire. Even before the Turrell bird signified their arrival on the European scene, groups of Magyars had served as mercenaries in armies all over the continent. Far from a unified singular army, other groups went their own way, forging paths to wealth and glory via plunder and mayhem. During the early 10th century, the still very pagan Magyars became as feared and reviled as the pagan Northmen sweeping down along the coasts from Scandinavia. Though, of course, like Scandinavians, not all Magyars were marauders, it is nonetheless with good reason that a common prayer for this time ended with the infamous words, God save us from the arrows of the Magyars. Yet, nevertheless, within just a couple of generations of their arrival on the Hungarian plain, Christianity began to seep into the region in the form of Eastern Roman and Slavic missionaries, sent primarily from Byzantium and neighbouring Bulgaria to tame the wild horsemen, causing havoc on their borders. Astonishingly, just a single generation after that, a Magyar chieftain, one of the most powerful of the bunch, and a descendant of the mighty warlord Arpad, son of Almos, progenitor of every Hungarian king until the early 14th century, at least nominally converted to Christianity. Probably like most pagan kings of the time who did the same, from Norway to Kiev, simply adding Jesus to his existing polytheistic pantheon. Though by the next generation there was no going back. His name was Giza, and though he was just one ruler amongst many, Soon enough, through brutal acts of aggression, he would suppress most of the other rulers of the region in solidifying centralised control. By the time his son, Vajk, came to power in the late 10th century, the world had changed. Baptised in the year 1000, and according to many accounts, sent a symbolic crown by the Pope 
and his German patron, Otto III, Vajk was given the Christian name Stephen. Istvan in Hungarian. Unlike his father, he took his vow very seriously. Within a decade, the new kingdom, Hungary, was officially a Christian realm, brought into the fold alongside Norway, Poland, Bohemia, and of course, his benefactor, Imperial Germany. In the space of just 50 years, the Hungarians had gone from one of the most feared enemies of Christianity to its newest converts, and an anointed member of the community of European kingdoms. But of course, the story is nowhere near as simple as that. This is the story of how a kingdom is born. This is the story of a tribe of horse lords who became a sedentary Christian nation that still exists today. In the year 927, a solitary missionary headed north from the great city of Constantinople. His destination was deep into the heathen lands along the Danubian frontier. His name was Gabriel, and though he wasn't the first servant of Christ to arrive in the region, the famous Cyril and Methodius, converters of the Slavs, having arrived long before him in the latter 9th century, times had changed in the interim period. Gabriel's task was an incredibly dangerous one, to begin the conversion of the pagan horse warriors fresh off the steppe, who now called the region home. Once long ago, this had been Roman territory. The visible remnants of that long gone by time could still be seen on the landscape. Yet, times had been hard for the Romans since then. Their territory pushed back significantly to the environs around Constantinople and the southern shore of the Danube. Many empires and kingdoms had risen and fell in the region in the intervening years. The Huns had ruled their mighty empire from here some 400 years in the past followed by Germanic Gepids, Ostrogoths, Avars, Slavs, and Bulgars. The remnant populations of most of these people could still be found in this rugged land, nestled in remote fastnesses in Transylvania and the Carpathian Mountains, as well as in roving nomadic bands and towns all over the sprawling plains. The most recent incomers to the region, the Magyar horse lords, now held the power and reins of society. Yet these other peoples still had some say too, and certainly some kind of a reciprocal relationship with their new overlords. Perhaps like the Avars before them, and as the archeological evidence suggests, still living a semi-nomadic lifestyle themselves. Whilst exacting tribute, from the settled populations of the region, in return for safety. The land which Gabriel entered in that year wasn't necessarily cut off from the Eastern Roman world, 
its new inhabitants long having held diplomatic contacts with the great city, even before migrating westwards in the 9th century. Though nevertheless, it was a very different land. Despite usually being labelled as Turks or Scythians by the contemporary sources, of which the military manual written by Byzantine Emperor Constantine Porphyrogenitus is an invaluable source of information. The Magyars were originally a Finno-Ugric-speaking people, descended from Neolithic forest dwellers of faraway Siberia. It was within these great forests of modern-day Russia, adjacent to the Ural Mountains, that the ancestors of the Magyars lived. Originally fishermen, hunters and trappers, at some point long ago, perhaps after forging links with neighbouring horse-riding steppe nomads via the fur trade, these proto-Magyars would first venture forth onto the Great Plains to emulate the lifestyle of their nomad neighbours. Throughout history, nomads and forest dwellers have often had long-lasting connections. Sometimes nomads would become forest dwellers once more, such as the great ruler Genghis Khan did during his youth. But much more likely was the pattern of forest dwellers adopting a nomadic lifestyle. The linguistic evidence of the Magyar's origins is unequivocal, yet similarly irrefutable evidence of Turkic and even Iranian influence exists too in the form of numerous loanwords from neighbouring steppe peoples, the telltale signs of long-lasting interactions. Many of the names of conquest-era Magyar chieftains are even Turkic in origin themselves, perhaps reflecting the years spent under the hegemony of the Khazar Khagans. As the Magyars gradually headed further and further west over the centuries, The seven tribes of Magyars spoken of in later sources, such as the Hungarian Chronicle, written by an anonymous author in the 12th century, are thought by most modern historians to not actually have been seven tribes at all, but perhaps as many as 18, a number of smaller Turkic and Iranian peoples, such as the Khabars, Sheklas, and others, having been absorbed into the whole during their long centuries of migration from the Ural Mountains in the east. These tribes would later be joined by Bulgars, Pechenegs and even Muslims, perhaps Volga Bulgars, seeking better lands and a new beginning. These peoples are thought to have continued speaking their own tongues, and inevitably in such a diverse world there were those who could converse in many tongues. Perhaps as time went on, even Greek and Latin too. This was the world which Gabriel entered in the late 920s. A land of transition, a realm of many gods. Gabriel would have to combat tengriest followers of the sky god and worshippers of sacred trees. In short, Gabriel certainly had his work cut out. 
we get a brief glimpse into some of the pre-Christian rituals of the Magyars, when the contemporary German chronicler Widerkind of Corvi talks of dogs being cut in half at a meeting to symbolise the breaking of an oath, a tradition found in many steppe tribes to symbolise the fate of the oathbreaker. During this period, we find innumerable pagan burials all over Hungary, providing rich evidence of pre-Christian culture in the form of clothing, weapons and jewellery. Exceptionally rich grave goods found in some sites are no doubt the burial places of chieftains and notable warriors. Though more modest graves have been found too, in similar styles, perhaps those of less fortunate soldiers. Like all steppe tribes, bows and arrows seem to have been the main weapon of choice. Though sabres, spears and swords are sometimes found too. Ornamental bow cases decorated with gold and precious metals and artistic carvings were rich status symbols and a sign of power. Interestingly, Whilst horses are almost always found in graves, usually only parts of the horse are interred, along with all of the skin, perhaps because the rest of the body was eaten during a funerary feast. There may simply have been a great multiplicity of beliefs, due to the sheer variety of peoples absorbed into the whole on the westward journey of the Magyars. Though Christian crosses are found from this period too, it remains near impossible to interpret whether these were at first simply ornamental status symbols or genuine examples of piety brought in by missionaries such as Gabriel, who, unfortunately for us, disappears from the record almost immediately as he appears. Grave sites tell us one thing definitively. During the first half of the 10th century, raiding formed the basis of wealth and power in Hungary. This period is often known in Hungarian sources as the time of adventures. Though at first campaigns were fought for mostly defensive reasons. In the early 900s, the newly Christian Slavic realm of Great Moravia threatening the Magyars from the west, was destroyed, thus undoing all the work of the missionaries Cyril and Methodius. At first, the Bulgarian kingdom on their southern border paid the Magyars not to raid their lands, though later they hired them as swords for hire. Other peoples who eventually hired the Hungarians included Bavarians, Byzantines, Franks and Lombards. As time went on, by the middle of the century, perhaps as diplomatic and commercial links began to form, instead of taking slaves to be sold to foreign buyers, captives would often be fairly quickly ransomed back to their own people for cash. Whilst it remains difficult to assess the impact of Gabriel, as he is only mentioned in passing, most likely other unrecorded missionaries set to work during this time too, just as they did all throughout Europe. 
many meeting grim ends at the hands of those they sought to proselytize to. Nevertheless, as time goes on, traces of Christianity show up more and more in the archaeological record, overwhelmingly in the form of Byzantine crosses and trinkets. Though, of course, it remains difficult to distinguish their origins between commerce and actual conversion. By 948, however, all this was to change. The Byzantine historian John Skylitzes relates a momentous occasion where several Magyar chieftains were invited to Constantinople. Whilst there, several of them, including a grandson of Arpad, Tomachu, and a figure named as one of the primary princes of the realm, Volshku, were named as friends of the emperor. Volshku, along with another ruler, Giula, even accepted baptism, likely in return for political help and legitimization from the emperor over their regional rivals, with the emperor even becoming godfather to Bolshu. Nevertheless, according to Skylitzes, Bolshku apparently had second thoughts about his conversion, continuing to raid Byzantine lands until his death in 955. Giula, however, was more sincere, taking a monk by the name of Hierotheos back with him to his lands in 952 to serve as his priest. According to Skylitzes, he converted many people to Orthodox Christianity. Thus, until the mid-10th century, it looked increasingly likely that if the Magyars converted, they would become Eastern Christians, like the Bulgarians before them and their Rus neighbours after. Yet, in just a handful of years, all this was to change, for another power was arising to the West. In 933, a large force of Magyar warriors headed westwards once more, past the desolate, burnt-out fortresses of the Moravians, through the forests of Central Europe, and towards the heartlands of the fledgling German kingdom beginning to form. For, of course, the Byzantine Empire wasn't the only Christian power the Magyars had contact with, and now, after several years of exacting tribute, they sought to ravage the fertile lands of the Germans. Waiting for them, however, was the first non-Frankish king to arise in the region since before the time of Charlemagne. An experienced military commander and founder of one of the most important dynasties of the early Middle Ages, Henry the Fowler. The ensuing battle fought at Merseburg was a crushing blow for the Magyars, perhaps their most significant defeat in a generation. The battle not only ensured German independence, but is often seen as the beginning of the end of the adventuring period. Nevertheless, 
By the 950s, the Magyars were back, ravaging and plundering their way through Bavaria, now ruled over by Henry's son Otto I, though this time they came as allies of Otto's rebellious son and uncle. By 955, his family members brought back in line to fight alongside him. Otto surprised the Magyars near the river Lech, forcing them into a confrontation against his heavy knights, levied from all corners of the realm. By day's end, a roll call of the most important Magyar chieftains of the age lay dead, many of them executed by hanging as common criminals at the ancient eastern court of the Carolingians at Regensburg in Bavaria. According to the chronicler Aventinus, amongst the dead lay Lel, Charba, Taxony and Bolshu, the one-time convert to Byzantine Christianity. Defeat at the Lechfeld hammered home the superiority of heavy knights in an open fight against lightly armoured horse archers, definitively bringing to an end the period of adventure campaigns. Though the Hungarian chronicles were mostly written 200 years after the conquests, and tend to oversimplify and relate everything to the great noble families of the Magyars, most notably the House of Arpad. It does seem that an Arpad family member now came to the fore, wielding significant amounts of power in the years that followed, aided no doubt by the deaths of so many rivals. His name was Taxoni. In his youth, Taxoni had took part in raids, most notably leading an expedition into Italy in 947. Though now, he would begin work in setting up a kingdom, singling out Byzantium for raids in the years that followed, and never again venturing into Germany. It seems that by this time, great changes had already began to take hold on the Pannonian Plains. Archaeological evidence suggests that although Hungarians continued their traditional ways after arriving in the Carpathian Basin, they also founded at least some permanent settlements shortly afterwards, which may have served as winter bases at first. By the mid-10th century, however, in areas where the soil was suitable for agriculture, these gradually turned into permanent villages with houses which became a new source of food alongside the traditional animal raising. As Taxoni set about attempting to consolidate his power, to the west, Otto became a superpower to rival Constantinople, being crowned in Rome as emperor, the first since Charlemagne 150 years earlier. This power seems to have had a lasting effect on the Magyars, who began accepting Western missionaries as well as those from Byzantium. The Italian chronicler Leotprand of Cremona, for example, writes that Pope John XII, hostile to Otto's imperial pretensions, sent a certain bishop named Zacchaeus to the Hungarians in order to preach that they should attack the Germans in 963. Thus, a war of the mind between East and West was fought in order to bring Hungary into their respective spheres of influence. 
Nevertheless, despite historical arguments, the Taxoni first initiated the Latin orientation of his dynasty before the 970s. The Gester Hungarorum recounts that significant Muslim and pagan Pechenegg groups also settled during this time. Christian influence was just one facet amongst many, and it would take many years before it took hold. It would be Taxoni's son who would be the real founder of Hungarian greatness. In the 20th century, a number of family cemeteries were discovered in Hungary's Upper Tisha region. Those dating from the conquest period and the 70 or so years afterwards showed signs of great wealth and power. By the latter half of the 10th century, however, in the decades following the defeat at the Lech, the graves get smaller and smaller until finally they are not used anymore. Whilst this may seem normal to the casual observer, a number of archaeologists have interpreted this as evidence of great changes in the country, specifically the rise of a new centralizing power. The discontinuation of the tombs coincides with the reign of the first Magyar ruler for whom firm evidence is available for. His name was Giza. Succeeding his father in around 972, Giza was very quick to realize the link between Christianization and the building of centralized royal power, a tendency for which he would develop a merciless reputation. Amongst the plethora of titles in Hungary at this time, Giula, Voivode, Archon, in most sources, Giza is singled out above the rest as senior Magnus, or even as king. Just before his death, Taxoni had arranged a profitable marriage alliance for his son to Sarolt, the daughter of Giula of Transylvania, one of the most important regional magnates of the region, thus giving his son a firm base of power. Yet another marriage in 972 also sent shockwaves throughout the continent. Otto's son, Otto II, married the Byzantine princess Theophano, thus bringing Hungary's two most powerful adversaries into an alliance, a situation that threatened the fledgling realm. It's unclear who converted Giza, though it is clear why he did so, attempting to forge a lasting peace with Otto and the Holy Roman Empire, and thus protect himself from Byzantium in the process. A monk named Bruno arrived in Hungary in around 972, dispatched from Otto's court. And in the next year, Hungarian legates were present at a conference held by the emperor in Quedlingburg. Bishop Pilgrim of Passau claimed that some 5,000 Hungarian elites converted in the early 970s due to Western missionaries. Whilst this is almost certainly an exaggeration, the added details that Christian slaves were now able to practice their religion openly may be true. Although a pilgrim may have been liberal with the truth in order to emulate other writers such as Bede, and to outdo his own rival, the Archbishop of Salzburg.
nevertheless, it does seem that Giza was the first to support Western missionaries rather than Eastern Orthodox. Some historians even see him as building the first bishopric of Hungary, though again this may not be true and is very open to interpretation. Yet nevertheless, Giza continued sacrificing to pagan gods long after his conversion, a situation illustrated by the contemporary German chronicler Thietmar of Merseburg. Geza was very cruel and killed many people because of his quick temper. When he became a Christian, however, he turned his rage against his reluctant subjects in order to strengthen this faith. Thus, glowing with zeal for God, he washed away his old crimes. He sacrificed both to the omnipotent God and to various false gods. When reproached by his priest for doing so, however, he maintained that the practice had brought him both wealth and great power. By the late 970s, having realized the power which Christianity could bring due to its insistence on the divine right of kings, Giza's military retinue increasingly became the basis of a royal army. He could count on the loyalty of most of the regional lords, and those who defied him suffered grim fates. The longer version of his son's saintly life states that Giza's hands were defiled with blood. Whether dark legend or truth, Giza is said to have buried alive Thonazoba, chieftain of the Pechenegs that had settled in Hungary a few decades before. 20th century Hungarian historian Paul Engel argued that Giza carried out a large-scale purge against his relatives, which also explains the lack of references to other members of the Arpad dynasty from around 972 onwards. Innumerable regional lords and even family members were massacred, with just a handful, such as Kopany, who continued to rule the southern parts of Transdanubia, surviving the cull. By the 980s, Giza again turned to foreign policy, taking advantage of internal conflicts that emerged in the Holy Roman Empire after Emperor Otto I's death. Giza invaded Bavaria in 983, seizing the fortress of Melk. In 991, the Bavarians finally launched a counterattack, which forced Giza to withdraw Hungarian forces from the territories east of Vienna. He had succeeded, however, in being recognized as a serious power. By 996, a new peace treaty was negotiated with Henry IV, cousin of Otto and the Duke of Bavaria. Giza returned the lands he had taken, but also arranged the marriage of his eldest son and heir, still bearing the Magyar name Vajk, to Henry's sister Gisela. It was an auspicious moment, and even before this marriage alliance, Giza assembled all of the lords of the realm, before forcing them to take an oath confirming his son's right to succeed him. By the time of Giza's death in 997, his son Vajk was in an extremely favourable position. Bavarian wife at his side, no doubt along with a contingent of household knights now loyal to him, he immediately set about consolidating his rule. Yet, as we shall see, he had his work cut out. Giza knew the transition to his son's rule would be a difficult one, 
helping out as much as he could before he died, by surrounding his main rival, Copernese lands, with Sheklas, Pechenegs, and other Turks loyal to him, and after his death, his son Vajk. The succession was in truth a power grab, contrary to the traditional custom, which held that the elder family members should inherit the throne, not the son. Right on cue, Kopany rose up in revolt, seeking legitimacy by attempting to marry Giza's widow, Stephen's mother, Sarolt. After this fierce baptism of fire, Vajk overcame Kopany, according to one source, sending his quartered body parts to all corners of the realm. One quarter was apparently sent to his uncle, Giula, who fairly quickly put off any idea of rebellion. Enjoying support from Germany via his marriage to Gisela, contemporary sources named various Western knights in Vajk's service, a power he would use to break the power of local lords. Finally, at the turn of the millennium, Vajk is said to have been sent a holy lance from Otto, and a crown from the Pope. The man promoted by Otto III, born of Byzantium and Rome, to help him usher in the new reign of what he saw as the last Roman Emperor. Though the story of the crown may have been invented by the writer Hartwich when he wrote his saint's life in 1100, the momentous turn of events at the end of the first millennium cannot be overstated. Just as Vajk became King Stephen, Duke Bolslav of Poland pledged his allegiance too, turning both men into kings. In truth, it remains almost impossible at times to disentangle Stephen's real power from the later legends, especially as he became the centre of 19th century nationalistic causes, and seen as the founder of the modern state, just like other figures from the past, such as Hermann the German, Boudicca and Vercingetorix. Yet Stephen lived much closer in time to these other European figures, thus his cult was more pronounced. He remains as important as ever in Hungarian national identity. Many sources regarding his life, such as the saints' lives, were written during the later reigns of Ladislav and Koloman, two kings who sought to defend and establish their own power against 11th and 12th century popes and emperors, and thus used and distorted Stephen for their own ends, in order to construct a historical memory that would serve their own goals. For example, portraying all of Stephen's enemies as pagans, a situation that was far from the truth. In 1002, Otto III died, quashing any ideas of a resurrected, unified Roman Empire and throwing Germany back into turmoil. In Poland, Bolslav soon made himself a nuisance to the new emperor, seizing the opportunity to reinforce his own power. For Stephen, however, the situation could not have gone any better. The new emperor was none other than the former Duke of Bavaria, Henry, and thus his brother-in-law. This, coupled with Bolslav's campaigns, made Stephen all the more valuable an ally, though he still had much work to do in his own kingdom. In the years that followed, Stephen extended his personal power as much as he could probably in similarly brutal ways to his father. 
Continuing in the footsteps of his father, he built large wooden castles and forts all over the realm, dividing up the land between them, each under a royal representative loyal to him. In 1002, he issued the first known Latin charter in Hungary, likely made by a scribe from the court of Otto III. Between this and the second charter issued in the 1030s, literacy began to flourish. A few runic words have been found from before this time, written in an old Hungarian script probably developed from the Orkhon script used by the Khazars. Though these weren't used for legislative purposes like Latin was. Minted coins also began with the reign of Stephen, likely being made by Bavarian moneyers imported from Henry's realm. Of course, Stephen also introduced churches on a massive scale, traditionally being credited with the establishment of ten bishoprics, though this took time. Written into his legal charters came the stipulation that every tenth village had to build a church, which he and his bishops would then provide with vestments, liturgical objects, and books. Though the extent to which this was enforced is unknown, and almost nothing remains of these early churches, made of wattle and daub. Thus, due to events happening abroad, Stephen found himself in an extremely strong position. His kingdom, however, was far from unified. There was still the issue of the most easterly lands, wild and hostile to his centralizing rule, said in near-contemporary sources to have been ruled over by pagan chieftains known as the Black Hungarians, as opposed to Stephen's White Hungarians. Since before Giza's time, there had apparently been two Hungaries. The eastern peoples allegedly being made up of Magyars, as well as auxiliary tribes who joined later, such as Sheklas, Pechenegs, and Kabars. For the most part, they still lived in the Transcarpathian region of modern-day Romania. Small, independent groups formed here under the control of rulers such as Giula and Ashtoni, the importance of whom can be illustrated by Giza's marriage to one of them. Though the Black Hungarians are often portrayed as recalcitrant pagans, in reality, expansion was a means of expanding royal power rather than religious, and there were probably pagans and Christians on both sides. In 1003, one chronicle records Giula's defeat though Ajtani, a Byzantine Christian probably enjoying support from the Empire, remained too powerful to assail, surviving as an independent ruler until the late 1020s. Though the Legenda Mayor of Saint Gerard describes him as politically dependent on the Empire. The Gesta Hungarorum also describes Stephen's defeat of a ruler named Kian, who may have been an independent Bulgar prince ruling in Transylvania. Though no large trade centre developed for a while, royal centres at Eshtegorm, which received its own archbishopric in 1000, and Fervahar were important towns and principal seats of the king. Times were changing very quickly, and by the early 11th century, 
agriculture dominated much of the plains, in time replacing nomadism entirely with cultivated crops such as rye, barley, oats and millet. Like most steppe people, smiths had always played an important role in producing horse accoutrements and armaments for the Magyars, and now they would export their goods to a wider market, selling items all over Europe. Though the previous conquest period pagan works were not continued, intricate gold and silver items forged in Byzantine and Western styles began to be made. Hungary was now well and truly integrated into Europe. Though Stephen's family would rule Hungary until the extinction of their clan in the early 14th century, in the years immediately following his death, the political situation very nearly fell apart. In a particularly vicious purge not long before his death, and following the death of his son and heir Imri in 1031, Stephen had his cousin Vasul blinded, his ears filled with lead and his sons exiled. The successor he chose was his sister's Venetian husband, Peter Orsiello. Orsiello ruled successfully for a while, but after so much death, a reckoning was on the way. In 1041, Peter was overthrown by a ruler named Samuel, perhaps a member of the Kaber tribe. In 1044, however, he was overthrown and killed with German support and Peter put back on the throne. Two years later, in the midst of a great last pagan revolt against Stephen's reforms, another war tore through the country. Peter was overthrown for the last time. This time, a member of the Arpad clan again came to the throne, Andrew, son of the mutilated Vassal, who ruled for another 14 years. Interestingly, Andrew had been put back on the throne with help from a group of Anglo-Saxon exiles, sons of King Ethelred the Unready, thus illustrating the far-reaching diplomatic ties of the new kingdom. Following Andrew's death in 1060, yet another pagan revolt broke out, and instability reigned well into the 1070s. For the most part, Hungary was a Christian kingdom now, though the eradication of pagan rituals preoccupied lawmakers well into the 12th century. More than a thousand years has passed since the heyday of the Magyars. The world has changed. Today, we can't all build hilltop citadels and recruit armies of landed knights for our security. In 2019, a different sort of raider poses a threat to our security. Hackers. If you're anything like me and spend time using public Wi-Fi in hotels, cafes, airports and museums, you need to be aware that without a VPN, a hacker could steal your passwords, credit card info and other personal information. I recently had a run-in with a slightly questionable individual who talked a lot about the dark web and hacking. After he sussed out what I did for a living, the situation made me completely reassess my online security. The solution I found was ExpressVPN, a virtual private network which encrypts your internet data when you're using public Wi-Fi, thus preventing any potential hackers from stealing your personal information and providing a great deal of peace of mind. 
ExpressVPN was recently rated the number one VPN service in the world by leading publication TechRadar. And I can see why. It's easy to use, meaning you could securely stream or download content from anywhere, anytime. They have the fastest speeds and server locations in 94 countries, which on a side note, you can change on a whim. And of course, apps for all of your devices, be it Windows, iOS, Android, Mac, Linux, and more. At less than $7 a month, it's a bargain too. And they even offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. Best of all, you can find out how you can get three months completely free by clicking the link in the description box below or by going to expressvpn.com forward slash history time. You've been watching History Time and I'll see you on the next one.